It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The FT. Easier access to mortgages for the self-employed. But should we worry about a return to reckless lending? How can we fix the looming pensions crisis? And the competition hots up in current accounts. I'm Jonathan Ely, and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues, Tonya Poli. Hello. Lucy Warwick-Ching. Hello. Plus our special studio guest, pensions consultant, Dr. Roz Altman. Hello. Now, when the credit crunch started to bite in 2007, and certainly when it really hit home in 2008, banks cut back sharply on any mortgage lending that might be deemed non-standard. Out went those infamous 125% mortgages, out went lending against buy-to-let properties, and in many cases, out went lending to anyone not in salaried employment. That made life very tough for the self-employed and people who work on short-term contracts. These sorts of working arrangements are particularly common in the IT industry, where specialists tend to move from one big project to another. Contract staff make up around 14% of the UK's workforce, according to the Office for National Statistics. Mortgage market conditions have eased since then. House prices are rising again and banks can access cheap funding from the government. So they are taking the shackles off non-standard mortgage lending. We saw last week that lending to landlords now accounts for a fifth of all new mortgage loans and now more lenders are offering products for the self-employed and contractors. Tanya Poli has been investigating. Tanya, in the bad old days, these type of self-certification mortgages were branded liar loans because people could basically say anything on the form. Um, are we going back to that kind of uh, practice? Definitely not. Um, we've already seen that actually the uh, regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, it's about to introduce new mortgage rules come April 2014. And as part of that, the central thing to those rules is the fact that everyone has to prove um, their income to get a mortgage. So there's no way that we're ever going to go back to sort of the self-certification um, mortgages of the past where actually you could get a mortgage and you didn't have to prove your income. What we are seeing is that lenders are actually starting to adapt slightly more and realising that actually there is this growing part of the workforce which are self-employed or freelance or contract-based and they actually need to be a bit more flexible in terms of actually offering mortgages to these um, borrowers, as long as obviously they can still prove their income. Now, in the past, non-standard mortgages have been offered on, on worse terms. They've tended to be standard variable rates. There's been much lower product choice, much less access to the most competitive uh, fixed rate products. Is that changing now? Yes. So um, I think at the moment, really, if you uh, if we take the sort of self-employed market, 
as long as you can kind of provide evidence of sort of three years of accounts, then actually you can have the same access to the same mortgages as normal employed people can. I mean, the only downside is that actually what lenders do is that they take the past three years accounts and they will kind of provide an average and base it on that. So you're kind of slightly limited compared to employed people where the lender would just base it on your current salary. Um, But then if we look at the contractor market, which is where we've actually seen a lot of more easing this year, uh, Halifax in June, they actually made it possible that all people on fixed term contracts, such as like accountants, solicitors, um, investment bankers, they could actually have access to their um, normal standard range of mortgages. Um, Previously, they only actually offered that to um, contractors working in the IT uh, industry, because that's where actually contractors used to be a bit more prevalent. Okay, and you, you mentioned three years of accounts there. Is that the, is that the, the pretty standard burden of proof, if you like, for, for self-employed people seeking mortgages now? For self-employed, it, it does typically uh, tend to be that way. I mean, there are some lenders out there that will base it on fewer years, so like two years or even one year with some of the specialist lenders. But typically, you are going to have to provide three years of evidence. With contractors, there are um, ranges out there where they can base it just on sort of one-year history. Um, you just basically need to show that you've got that fixed term and contract in place. And often there's some kind of various restraints, like you have to be earning maybe 75000 gross in terms of Halifax um, and other various conditions. So they are still kind of delving deep into your kind of um, employment history to make sure that they want to be able to offer you this loan. Um, so it's not as easy as it once was, but um, it definitely it does seem to be showing some signs of improvement. And what tips are advisors offering to the to the self-employed and contract, uh, contractors who may be applying for a mortgages? I mean, does the process take longer, for instance, than a normal mortgage application might do? Yes, it can do. I mean, a lot of the brokers I've been speaking to this week have said that actually what self-employed homeowners should look to do is actually... Um, make sure they get all their information ready before they kind of bid on their home and apply for their mortgage because um, they can see sort of delays in the process because they actually have to uh, request certain forms from HMRC which can kind of take up to like three weeks to deliver. So um, one broker I spoke to this week called um, Springtime Capital, they were saying they were seeing some um, homeowners lose out of their home because they were facing these delays and actually getting the right information to be able to process the mortgage. And obviously as we know the London market's quite hot at the moment so you know that you don't want any delays to actually kind of scupper your your home. Tanya, thank you very much. We've lots more on the subject of mortgages for the self-employed and contractors in this weekend's FT Money. And we have, of course, the latest mortgage data in tabular form, courtesy of our friends at Money Facts. If you can't get to a newsagent this weekend, you can read FT Money via the FT's tablet apps on Kindle and online at www.ft.com forward slash money. If you want to leave comments, you can do so at the foot of articles on our website, or you can email us. The address is money at ft.com. Still to come on the show, competition in current accounts hots up as banks are forced to fight for customers. But first, let's look at an issue that's causing deep concern in some quarters, the coming pensions crisis. Over the past 10 or 15 years, scores of final salary pension schemes have closed, leaving many private sector workers at the mercy of stock and bond markets. More recently, wage growth has lagged inflation, putting pressure on people's take-home pay and making the idea of paying into a pension much less attractive. At the same time, the ultra-low interest rates prevalent in most of the developed world have meant very poor yields on safe assets such as government bonds, which form the bedrock of most pension schemes. As a result, pension saving has collapsed – Worker participation in private sector schemes is now at its lowest level since the government started collecting data in 1953. 
millions of people have made no provision at all for their retirement. Yet citizens are generally living longer, and we have fewer children. Currently, there are four people in work for every person over 65, but by 2030, the United Nations thinks that'll be down to three. And we expect to live it up in retirement. A survey released this week suggested the average person thinks they'll need around £21,000 a year to enjoy their golden years. That's not far below the UK's average median wage. Where is the money going to come from? I'm joined now by Dr Ros Altman, who is an economist and an advisor to governments and the pensions industry. Ros, thanks for joining us. It's a bleak prognosis, but what steps can we as individuals take uh, to ensure that we don't end up as wards of the state in old age? Well, clearly we need to make a plan. I think the first thing is everybody needs some kind of plan as to how they are going to finance later life. And the money is not going to come from a magic tree. You have to do something about it. So if you want money, you're going to get something from a state pension. At the moment, with the state pension reform going through, it's likely that that will be, certainly for younger people, around £7,000 a year in today's money. On top of that, you're either going to need quite a lot of savings or you're going to need money from somewhere else, possibly downsizing your house or inheritance. And the other way in which you could have money in later life is working. Instead of just relying on your financial capital, you could also include your human capital. And I think that is going to have to be part of... Uh, people's planning for later life if they can't afford to save significant sums and most people are simply not putting that much money aside. You mentioned that that people are not saving. Is that the kind of one piece of advice you would give that really, you know, much as it may appear difficult in the current economic environment, even saving a little bit each month is going to really help you later in life, especially if you start early on? Traditionally, you would have thought that Anyone who does some saving will be a lot better off in later life. In recent years, that message has been muddied by uh, some of the means testing in the state pension system, which could end up meaning that your savings are wasted if they're in a pension. And actually, people might be better off saving in a different form like an ISA. If you're relying on cash savings, you are in real trouble because of recent monetary policy where you know, the, the interest rate you get on your uh, savings doesn't keep up with inflation. So again, you know, the, the message isn't clear. I think this has been a very difficult environment for savers. But one hopes that in the long run, and especially with auto-enrolment now being rolled out so that all workers are going to have to be put into a pension scheme by their employers that the outlook for savers will improve, confidence in saving needs to improve. And that in itself should help because clearly the longer you have to accumulate returns and interest on your savings, the more you should have in later life. And that's the message that I think we need to try and get across and that we need to help people have more confidence in. Whether that needs more flexibility than the current pension product itself, which can be quite frightening, especially to younger people. You know, they they know that their money is completely locked away from them. They feel perhaps that it's confiscated from them and they can't have it until 
many decades into the future, that might put some of them off saving, especially if they haven't yet paid back a student debt or if they haven't yet bought a house. They might think, I want all of, all of my money to be saving towards that rather than locking it away in a pension and not having any access to it. You mentioned um, changes to the state pension regime and you mentioned auto-enrolment there. Now, every March, the government uses the budget to tinker with the rules on pensions yet again. If you were advising the Chancellor now, what changes in policy would you be pushing for? What do you think the government can do to to ease the the crisis in coming years? There aren't any easy answers because we're in the kind of economic situation we're in. But I think there are a number of issues that the government could and should address. One of them is to help people understand that when you're making a financial plan, just relying on a pension isn't enough to see you through retirement. For example, one in three of us is likely to need social care. Pensions don't cover social care at all. So the Chancellor might be uh, encouraged, perhaps, uh, as I've been calling for, to introduce perhaps a special ISA allowance for care, care ISA savings, which will be tax-free as long as the money is used to pay for care, could be for you, could be for someone else. I think we need urgently to look at a better regime for converting defined contribution pensions into an income stream. Annuities are not working well for the customer. They're working very well for the provider, but perhaps some more encouragement to help people have a bit of a fairer deal out of annuities and maybe some encouragement of products which straddle the annuity and the income drawdown. You know, at the moment, there's a stark choice. Uh, And in fact, proper education information, maybe even advice being required before you make this irreversible annuity decision could help a lot of people with uh, a much better outcome in later life. The other thing I would urge the Chancellor to do is to tinker as little as possible with many of the current rules because we've had so many changes over so many um, budgets recently that a lot of people have simply lost track of what on earth is going on with pensions. And just finally, you mentioned there that um, that many of us will probably have to work longer. That, that I mean, and already the state pension age is, is set to rise. Do you think we have to as a society, completely rethink, really, the balance between our traditional ideas of work and retirement and this idea that at age 65, work ends and retirement begins? We absolutely have to have a radical rethink of retirement. Retirement is a completely outdated, old-fashioned idea. Retirement should be a process, in my view, not an event, so that there's a whole new phase of life of part-time work, which can start in your 60s and carry on into your 70s. People are not old at 65 anymore in the way that, you know, the pension system seems to consider them to be. People are already, millions are already starting to think about working longer. Over a million are already working past 65. Part-time work after your full-time career, where perhaps the state pension starts to kick in, Obviously, the state pension age is going up anyway, but that can replace some of your declining income. But you will still have opportunities to keep working, keep earning, have more money, um, perhaps two or three days a week work, four or five days a week free, more money and a better lifestyle, and then have uh, better opportunities 
to have more income in later life rather than stopping at what I think is an unreasonably early age for many people, not everyone. I mean, some people are not well enough to work, but I think the vast majority probably are well enough. They would then understand that it's not all just about this frightening thing called pensions and savings. They can do other things for themselves, which you know, can bring them other benefits in life. People enjoy working not just for the money, actually, especially if it's not full-time, where there's less stress. Ross Altman, thank you very much for joining us. You can read lots more about the pension problem and its possible solutions in this weekend's FT Money. And if you're one of those people planning to use the equity in your home to as the primary funding for your retirement, my column explains why it's unlikely to be enough. On to our final item for today. In September, the Payments Council will introduce a new guarantee so that those who wish to move their current accounts will be able to do so within seven working days. The government and consumer associations have long bemoaned public inertia when it comes to current accounts. By some measures, people are more likely to get divorced than they are to switch their bank accounts. And anyone who's ever switched will understand why. The entire process is hugely disruptive, takes a long time, and often direct debits and salary payments go astray. Already, banks are starting to position themselves for a new era of more mercenary customers. They're launching all sorts of offers to either attract new consumers or retain existing ones, and we'll probably see much more promotional activity over the next few weeks. Lucy Warwick-Ching has been looking at who's offering what. Lucy, what are some of the deals on offer at the moment? Well, as you wrote in a blog actually earlier this week, so if listeners want to read that, that's on our website on uh, Money Matters. But you wrote about the NatWest cashback scheme. They've launched it for its 12 million current account customers and it allows people to earn money uh, when they use their debit card to spend in a range of retailers. Um, And then there's things like First Direct and they're now giving £125 to new customers who switch to its first account. Halifax is also giving away money. It's giving £100 to new and existing customers that switch to its current account. And then Santander's 123 current accounts also offering cashback, um, but they're doing it on household bills. Um, so you could get 1% cashback on water, council tax and mortgage payments. Um, and then there's one from Secure Trust. If you sign up to a Secure Trust current account, um, then you'll get a MasterCard, a prepaid card, which can get um, give you 4% cashback on purchases in places like Asda, Boots, M&S and B&Q. So there has been a real flurry of activity in this um, area recently. So there's lots of new accounts coming onto the market. Now, in the savings arena and in credit cards, things like cashback have been used as promotional tools for a long time. And customers have wised up to that and, they, and they've sort of gone around and got lots of different credit cards and, and moved balances from one card to another. Well, presumably, banks are, are introducing caveats, are they, to stop people simply opening accounts, taking advantage of the deals and then going taking their money somewhere else when, when the deals run out? Yes, that's exactly it. Banks have wised up to savvy consumers that have been opening up lots of accounts, getting lots of deals. So Halifax has has been one of the first to introduce a rule that forces customers to actually close their existing current account to actually get the cash. So other things that they've introduced are making sure that people 
transfer a thousand pounds a month into the account. Now that's nothing new, but now they're saying that people need to have, say, two direct debits set up to that account or also have standing orders. So this kind of prevents people from just switching a thousand pounds into their account at the beginning of the month and then just taking it straight out. So they want people to really use these accounts. Okay, and what should customers be aware of when they're when they're shopping round for um, for, for a p- potential new current account? Well, lots of people I've been speaking to have been saying that um, you know advisors recommend looking beyond these golden hellos. Uh, people are saying that you shouldn't just look at the incentives for choosing a current account. You've got to really look at how you spend your money and what's going to benefit you. So. If you're the kind of person that will really benefit from a cheap overdraft or credit interest or cashback, then really look at what's going to help you. So you could be the sort of person that travels a lot. So you might be looking for an account with um, cheap or free debit cards abroad. So I think lots of people are basically saying when the new rules come in in September, there will be even more accounts opening. So perhaps if you're thinking about switching, then it might be worth actually waiting and seeing what people have got to offer and and choosing what's suitable for you. Thank you very much, Lucy. And who knows, maybe one day banks will just go back to paying interest as a way of rewarding their customers. There's more on this subject in this weekend's FT Money, and we'd love to hear your views on it too. You can leave comments at the foot of stories on our website, or you can email us. The address, once again, is money at ft.com. Don't forget that, as Lucy mentioned, you can read about money online throughout the week at www.ft.com forward slash money, where you'll find our blog posts and useful tools like our pensions calculator and the latest annuity rates. But until next week, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Tanya, Lucy and our special studio guest, Ros Altman. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. 